Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. My name is Claire Lehman and I am Editor-in-Chief of Quillette. Quillette is where free thought lives. We are an independent grassroots platform for heterodox ideas and fearless commentary. Our podcast is a team effort and is jointly hosted by myself, Associate Editor Toby Young and Canadian Editor Jonathan Kay. You can support our podcast by visiting patreon.com forward slash Quillette and becoming a monthly patron. By becoming a monthly patron, you'll also receive our weekly newsletter. Hi, my name's Toby Young. I'm an associate editor of Quillette. Um, today, we'll be doing something slightly different. Today, you'll hear a live podcast, uh, though it's not actually live, obviously. Um, I was invited to do a live podcast in front of an audience at a festival, a free speech festival called the Battle of Ideas in London last weekend. It's organised by the Brexit Party MEP and Quillette contributor Claire Fox. Uh, and I interviewed uh, Steve Richards, a well-known veteran political journalist and pundit, um, who's also an author. He's just written a book about uh, nine of Britain's recent prime ministers. But he and I have obviously been following uh, developments in British politics since Boris Johnson managed to call a general election last week. So we spent quite a bit of time talking about the forthcoming general election due to be held in the UK on December 12th. Hope you enjoy it. Today, I'm going to be interviewing Steve Richards. Uh, Steve is uh, a veteran political journalist, um, uh, a columnist, a pundit, um, uh, but he, like many of us in the journalism game, um, have diversified. Um, and now has a portfolio career. And in addition to continuing to write and comment about politics, um, he ha writes books. Um, he's just written a book about um, Britain's prime ministers, about nine of Britain's prime ministers, and there was a tie-in radio show on Radio 4 uh, uh, about Britain's prime ministers. Uh, and he also performs live on stage. He has a show called Rock and Roll Politics, um, Uh, it sells out every time he performs it. He does it about once a month. He did it at the Edinburgh Festival. Um, uh, so, uh, and I, I'm really quite tempted by that idea myself. I like the idea of instead of just writing a column in The Spectator or wherever it is and sort of uh, never getting any reaction apart from the occasional kind of mobbing on Twitter, um, uh, uh, to actually deliver a column in front of a live audience and um, and then get lots of lots of feedback which I imagine in your case is overwhelmingly yeah, positive and you're right to describe it. it's like a column on stage I don't know if any of you have been but I did it at King's Place the other day and it was full in the main hall and it was very interesting there's a lot of audience interaction but in the first half I frame in effect a column just responding to the drama of the moment and each time there is a drama and it's different so obviously it was a sort of election Uh, event uh, at King's Place the other day and the next one will be immediately after the election and it obviously will be completely different. So it is like a column on stage. Do, 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 is it harder to be iconoclastic and confound people's assumptions on stage because what you want is kind of applause and laughter rather than boos and hisses? Well, it's a good question because unlike uh, for one of the magazines you work for in the UK, The Spectator, do lots of live events, but I imagine the audience you kind of know will be your readers, so you sort of know where they come from. Now, you, I genuinely don't know what the audiences will be in terms of their political 
uh, makeup. So what I use these shows to do more is instead of saying, you know, I'm a Remainer, those bloody Brexit, you know, which would be boring, frankly, mm-hmm. is to try and look behind what's going on and try and make sense of the crazy times we're living in and bring the characters of politics to life and explore the dilemmas they face. So I always say to the audience at the beginning, you know, I don't care what you think about anything, we're going to try and understand it more. And I get the audience to become some of the characters. So on the other day, I got the audience to become Nigel Farage and to try and... It got a laugh then as well. um, And to try and work out what he was going to do in this general election and the dilemmas he was facing about whether to field candidates across the board or not. And it was very interesting. And some of them were better at putting Farage's case than Farage himself, Mm. Um, even though I suspect they weren't uh, pro-Farage. So so it is about getting behind the scenes. And I think it would be a mistake to do live shows with just saying, right, all Remainers come together and we'll talk about how wonderful Remain is, because it's just boring. Mm. We know the arguments for and against. So Mm. that's what it tries to do. For today, I thought what we'd do uh, would be to first start talking about the general election campaign, which is now underway, uh, and then talk a bit about your book, and then take some questions. Um, And I imagine we'll probably wrap up at about 12.45. So um, my first question, Steve, is how damaging will it be to Boris Johnson's prospects that England have just got thrashed by South Africa in the Rugby World Cup. And I, I recall yeah. that Harold Wilson claimed that England's victory in the 1966 World Cup actually gave his campaign a little bit of a fillip. Yeah, Harold Wilson used to go around saying, have you noticed uh, England only wins the World Cup under a Labour government? Um, and uh, sort of used it uh, as he tried to use all, like the Beatles, he used anything popular to try and link it to uh, the Labour Party. Um, this won't, uh, this election will be, is full of wild cards at the moment. We don't know what the impact of the Brexit Party will be. We don't know whether Jeremy Corbyn can pull off the trick he pulled off in 2017. We don't know quite how Boris Johnson will perform over six weeks as a prime ministerial candidate for the first time. So uh, we don't know whether people are going to vote tactically in a shrewd way or a crass way. And so I think it's those factors rather than the fate of the England rugby team that are going to determine the outcome of this election. Can I tell you why, as a Tory, I'm cautiously optimistic? Yeah, And then you could give me a reality bar. Um, So I'm cautiously optimistic because um, even though... Two years ago, uh, the gap, the polling gap between the Conservatives and Labour was comparable, if not greater, than it is today. Um, Corbyn appears to be starting from a lower point now than he was then. Uh, The bloom has gone off the rose. The toxicity around his leadership has become more embedded. Um, He seems to be a little bit more tired, exhausted, doesn't have that kind of magic grandpa aura that he did in 2017. Um, And Boris, unlike Theresa May, is a gifted political campaigner. So he uh, won election in London in 2008, re-election in 2012, even though London is traditionally a Labour city. He helped 
push the Leave campaign over the line in 2016. He has a track record of winning uh, election victories. He loves being on the campaign trail. He's relishing the TV one-on-one debate. Uh, But in addition, there is this kind of uh, strategic advantage that the Tories seem to have, which is that even though there is this split on the Brexit side of the aisle between the Brexit party and the Conservative party, that split seems to be less pronounced than the split on the Remain side of the aisle between Labour, the Lib Dems, the Greens and the Liberal Nationalist parties. And the fact that the election is taking place before we've left, so Brexit, whether we manage to leave, is going to be a big issue, uh, is strategically helpful to Boris and unhelpful to Corbyn. Yeah. So for all those reasons, I'm cautiously optimistic. Well, uh- let me press what I'll say in reply to why you might not have cause for that optimism by saying what I can't work out is whether up until 2017 we had all become conditioned to believe opinion polls. So when a poll came, I said, wow, look at that, you know, 2015, 2010. And since that 2017 election, we are now conditioned to assume the polls are wrong. So the polls point to a very big Tory majority, frankly. So that's cause for your optimism. But we now, after 2017, just take no notice of them. So everybody I bump into, certainly at Westminster, Tory politicians, Labour politicians, uh, when I ask them for their predictions, unlike you, they say it's going to be another hung parliament. Now, that's not what the polls are saying, but we're now conditioned not to believe them. Now, I wonder whether they are actually right and you have cause for optimism. But here's why you might not have that cause. Um, Multi-party elections make it much more difficult for one party to win an overall majority. Um, The fact that the Brexit party is standing uh, in in what looks like to be quite a sort of pronounced way uh, is not only an issue in terms of whether candidates take votes off the Tories, but will change the dynamic of the argument. Suddenly Boris Johnson has not got the Brexit space to himself. He's got a very articulate, formidable performer slagging him off from the Brexit perspective. And I think that might be a problem for him during the election. The other thing is that the Conservatives will lose seats in Scotland. They will lose some kind of seats in Remainer areas in perhaps London and parts of the South East. So they will have to pick up a lot to win an overall majority. Now, maybe they will. Um, but it's quite a tough challenge um, in parts of the north of England where there, is a, uh, there isn't a tribal attachment to Labour anymore, but it's quite a leap for them to go over to vote Conservative. Now, I've got a feeling they might in this election, and your optimism will be proved justified, but they may well not. And if there is a hung parliament, I don't think Boris Johnson will be the Prime Minister after December the 12th, because if you think about it, uh, the Lib Dems and the SNP could not prop up a Brexit Boris Johnson government. And therefore, whatever they say now, it would be a Labour administration of some sort that is formed in the Mm -hmm. aftermath. Mm -hmm. So while I can understand uh, your optimism, I think you should qualify it a bit and be prepared for disappointment, just in case. I suppose um, uh, another reason for being cautiously optimistic is that, um, against all expectations, Boris did persuade the EU to reopen the the negotiation 
to amend the withdrawal agreement. Um, and he now has a deal which, whilst it doesn't completely unite everyone on the Brexit side, unites most people on the Brexit side, including all the people in his own party. But not only does that mean he can fight without having to look over his shoulder at internal divisions, um, but at the same time it means that he can make a pitch to uh, moderates who perhaps voted Conservative in 2017, might be thinking about voting Liberal Democrat this time. Uh, but, but, but perhaps they'll think, well, he, he's not saying he wants to take us out with no deal. The risk of no deal, at least in the immediate term, has been taken off the table. Mm-hmm. It, it's not a bad deal. Uh, this appeals enough to me, and I'm so nervous about Jeremy Corbyn becoming PM, that I won't defect to the Liberal Democrats. And that means the Conservatives will be able to defend themselves from yellow on blue attacks he, in the southwest he, and in He's south, certainly in, in a better place than No Deal, which I wonder whether he ever was going to go for. Um, it, the parallels with Theresa May is a completely different personality, are quite close. I think he ached for a deal. And... Um, and he's got one, and that is quite an important protective shield to him. It will be scrutinised in some form or another during this election, this deal. Um, I don't think it is a good deal, and I don't think it actually uh, shows uh, smart negotiation. Basically, he went back to the original EU offer um, uh, and, and said, look, I can't take the one you gave her, but that one you were originally offering, that she rejected, we can work around that one. And I don't think that's genius, really, to do that. Um, So it depends how he survives under scrutiny about that deal. It depends whether at all there will be sort of reports out from independent bodies during the campaign saying, look, this deal will lead to a fall in living standards, fall in GDP. Now, maybe... That has no impact in this era that we're in now. That mm-hmm. Those who voted Brexit just will not care about that mm-hmm. and will not worry about a possible independence movement in Scotland taking off mm-hmm. afterwards. Um, but uh, I agree with you, it's better for him by miles to have that deal. And I gather that there won't be a mention of no deal in the manifesto. Um, but you and I disagree about the virtues of the deal. Now, I don't know where this will land in the wider mm. electorate. But, I mean, do you, do you think it is objectively a good deal for the United Kingdom or just politically for him? As a, I know you, you support Brexit, but, yeah. but, but do you think this is a good Brexit deal at, at, in substance and will withstand all scrutiny over the next six weeks? Well, I think it's as good a deal as he could have got given his starting point. Um, I think in an ideal world, he would have started from a different point and ended up with a different deal. But I think given the political reality, this is as good as he was ever going to get. And I think it does differ from the original Northern Ireland backstop deal offered to Theresa May um, or that Theresa May initially negotiated. I think it differs in two critical respects. The first is that um, uh, even though um, uh, there will be different regulations and rules governing trade in Northern Ireland. Nonetheless, Northern Ireland will be part of the UK's custom territory and we will be able to do UK-wide trade deals with other countries after we've left, which wasn't the case 
in that deal's original incarnation. And then the second difference is that the backstop, such that it is, if you want to call it that, uh, isn't permanent. We, there, is a, there is a kind of way of unraveling it with the consent of the various parties in Northern Ireland, particularly if Stormont can be resurrected. Um, so it seems to be not something we're trapped in and not something that prevents us from doing trade deals post-Brexit. So from that point of view, I think it's a more attractive deal. I think that's the, the, those two critical differences are why he's been able to get the ERG and other Eurosceptics in the kind of uh, the Brexit world on side. Um, I'm sure that uh, Nigel Farage will have a very good go at... at, at mm presenting it as Brexit in name only um, during the campaign. Uh, let's talk about the different personalities and um, what impact they're likely to have on the campaign. I mean, first of all, what was your read of what Nigel Farage was up to when he made his announcement yesterday morning and essentially said, um, Boris, you've got two weeks to drop the deal and come to some kind of accommodation with the Brexit party, or I'm going to field candidates. Well, it wasn't clear, but it sounded like in 500 constituencies yeah. in two weeks' time, which is the kind of deadline by which you're supposed to put your nomination papers in. Yeah, this, this, this was a fascinating political moment, I think, because I think it's the first time Nigel Farage has faced a real dilemma. Leaders, prime ministers face dilemmas every hour of every day. He, on the whole, has avoided them in the past because he campaigns brilliantly, wins, and then announces his resignation and goes and chairs an LBC phone-in. But this one was a dilemma. He was, as you know, uh, getting advice from some of his entourage. For goodness sake, if we field candidates across the country and and Johnson loses, we're going to get blamed for stopping Brexit. Let's target seats. Others were saying, and from his perspective, I think he made the right call. Look, we, we're claiming to be a credible political party. In our first general election, we've got to field candidates across the board. And I think the reason he has made this, in inverted commas, offer to Johnson is his get-out clause. He will say, if it all goes wrong, uh, wrong as in a Remain government is formed at the end of this. Uh, look, I offered Boris a pact. He didn't take it. So don't blame me. Um, and, but I think we know that you've mentioned his deal. The deal is central to the Johnson pitch. There's no way he's going to change that. So we know now that uh, the Brexit party will field seats across the country. They'll obviously target some more than others. Um, and uh, But that he has established his get-out clause in offering this pact. And that's how he's worked his way through this particular dilemma. Yeah, I mean, one reason I'm not as um, depressed by that development as I might otherwise be, um, is a point actually that Nigel Farage made in the course of his pitch, which is that in the 2015 election, um, even though overall, I don't think he qualified it in this way, but I will, even though overall UKIP attracted more former Conservative voters than former Labour voters, in key marginals it attracted as many, if not more, ex-Labour voters as ex-Conservative voters, which actually ended up helping the Tories and helping Boris, uh, David Cameron win the majority for the first time in 23 years. Um, uh, and it, it sort of depends on which, if he is going to fight which 500 seats, which 500 seats he fights. Yeah. I mean, as you and I know, there are only um, uh, about 100 or so key battleground mm. seats mm. Uh, where the outcome of the election will be determined. Um, uh, many of them are Tory-held seats. 
Um, some of them are Tory offensive marginals, which they hope to gain. And if, if, if the Brexit party doesn't field candidates or only fields candidates in a very limited way in those seats, then the Brexit party's presence as a national force in the forthcoming campaign won't be that damaging to the Conservative party. Now, there are obviously going to be some seats which the Conservatives are targeting, like Workington, um, uh, which, according to my calculations, is the 61st most winnable Tory target. Uh, there are going to be some seats that both the Brexit Party and the Conservative Party regard as winnable, and are going to pour resources into mm. trying to win, like Workington, where a vast majority of people, well, not the vast majority, but a majority of people certainly voted Leave in 2016, and quite a few people voted for the Brexit Party in the European elections earlier this year. But some polling yesterday done by Servation showed that the Tories are on something like 45% currently in Workington, um, and Labour is on 35%, Brexit Party is on 17%, but the Brexit Party actually is attracting uh, equal numbers of disillusioned Conservatives and disillusioned Labour voters. And the reason the Conservatives are ahead in Workington is because of con-Labour switches. And if that pattern is repeated... Uh, then the effect of the Brexit Party running in those Tory targets in the north of England uh, will not be to uh, enable Labour to cling on, because the effect of the Brexit Party candidates running in those constituencies will effectively be neutral. Um, and, and the number of con, uh, Labour con-switchers will enable Boris to get his majority. Th- this is why the election is so hard to read. That could well be one of the patterns in the general election. But there might be another, uh, which is this, that... I mean, Labour did really well in that 2017 election. They didn't win. But as a result of the increase in their vote share, they are in second place and quite close to the Conservatives in a surprisingly large number of seats, you know, very small Tory majorities. Now, this is the other unknown at the moment. Will, um, the say, the third party there, normally Lib Dems, vote Labour in those seats? Uh, to defeat the sitting Tory MP to get Remain, to stop Brexit. Now, I don't know, because most of those Lib Dems will say, I can't bear Corbyn. But if they want to stop Brexit, that's what they will have to do. And there are a lot of seats where that might happen. Mm -hmm. Similarly, um, there are seats where Labour are are, are just holding on to them at the moment, um, on the back of uh, Labour voters, some of whom, again, loathe Corbyn. The classic example, for example, being Hampstead in North London, where else? Now, what will my uh, mate columnist uh, David Aronovich do, who loathes Corbyn but loathes Brexit? Will he vote Lib Dem? In which case, if others do that, the vote split and the Tories win. So there are, there are going to be all kinds of different patterns, which is why it's quite hard to call... In advance, yes, and, and and I think one one thing the uh, remainers are pinning their hopes on are various tactical voting initiatives. So a lot of tactical voting advisory websites have been set up. In some cases, uh, there are uh, agreements to only field one pro-Remain candidate. I think the Lib Dems said they're not going to oppose Dominic Grieve if he runs as an independent in. Um, uh, wherever it is, um, uh, and um, uh, Beaconsfield, um, and uh, uh, but 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 I noticed uh, one of the constituencies I think where the Labour Labour is vulnerable is Kensington, which is the neighbouring constituency to where I live in London. Um, that is number one on the list of Tory targets. The majority that Emma Dent Code enjoyed over 
her conservative rival in 2017 was less than 100. Uh, and so if a sufficient number of Labour Party voters switch to the Lib Dems in that constituency, yeah, exactly. that, then that, that becomes very winnable for yeah. the Tories. Yeah. And I noticed I went to a couple of the tactical voting advisory websites on the Remain side, and one was saying vote Labour in this constituency, yeah. well, and another was saying vote Lib Dems. Well, they've got to get their act together <laughs> and choose one or the other. Um, uh, and, and that is going to be one of the, the, the key elements of this campaign, whether they can get their act together and, and, and whether enough non-Tory voters regard Remain as the key issue in this. Um, and my guess is a lot will. I don't think the election will be a single issue election. Uh, it's quite, apart from the Brexit Party and the Lib Dems, the Labour and Tory parties have got a whole raft of policies that they want to promote during the election. But the day after, if there's a hung parliament, you could forget the campaign ever took place. It will be all about, can we get an administration in place to stop Brexit? Mm-hmm. Um, and the rest will have gone as if it never happened. Um, but during the campaign itself, it's going to be interesting to see what other issues surface. Mm-hmm. Um, I think both the bigger parties will try very hard to make sure they do. How well do you think the smaller parties will fare in this election? I mean, one of the surprises of the 2017 general election is that, contrary to the general trend, the two mainstream Mm. parties picked up 85-plus percent of the votes cast. Um, Do you think we're going to see something similar in this election, or do you think the smaller parties are going to do better this time? I think the smaller parties are going going to do better. Um, And, I mean, we're going to see, in terms of votes, a revival of the Lib Dems. It's far from clear how many seats that will turn into, but in terms of votes, there's clearly going to be a revival. Um, And the Brexit Party will pick up votes, um, and uh, perhaps we don't know yet more than UKIP got in 2017 and the SNP are going to sweep Scotland mm-hmm. and so um, th- there are going to be in this new Westminster Parliament uh, more non-Tory Labour MPs than in, in the current one. It was very interesting 2017 that revival of two-party uh, politics um, and in this election you kind of I, I read a piece by um, I don't know if any of you read it uh, Philip Collins in the Times saying oh this is unbearable we've got no choice in this election you know I'm not going to vote I can't believe what I'm looking at I mean it's just not true I mean every bit of the Brexit debate the public spending debate uh, the role of the state debate is represented in this election you might not like the leaders but you've got now Uh, The no-deal Brexit, the Johnson uh, Brexit, the offer of a referendum, the offer of revoke. I mean, this is an election where people can't really complain, I think, Mm -hmm. about the range of choice and, oh, I'm not going to vote. I mean, I I, I just thought it was... Yeah. Uh, How well the Lib Dems do, I think, partly hinges on how effective a campaigner Joe Swinson proves to be. Um, There is a kind of consensus, which I think may be wrong, that if there are um, uh, multi-party leadership debates, um, that if she's on stage standing alongside Nigel Farage, Boris Johnson and Jeremy Corbyn, she benefits from being... Uh, a generation or so younger than them, um, uh, in some cases two generations younger than them, but also uh, being a woman, a woman from Scotland. I mean, when when you try and factor in the impact of leadership uh, into campaigns like this, how how much importance do you attach to those identity 
characteristics? I mean, did the fact that Theresa May was a woman help her with women? Is the fact that Boris uh, 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 is, is a sort of privileged white man going to antagonise people who feel alienated by his membership of those groups? Or is it much more to do with just the personality that the, the leader happens to have? I think it's much more to do with personality. So I think it's interesting with uh, Joe Swinson. I think a lot of uh, commentators uh, who sort of regard themselves on that very vaguely defined place called the centre ground will start off by saying, you know, Joe Swinson's our saviour and all the rest of it. From what I could tell so far, she's a poor performer. Um, and uh, she hasn't learnt the art of uh, an interview being conversational. She sounds rather, I don't know whether she is, I don't really know her, uh, whether she sounds rather lofty and slightly patronising and over-rehearsed. And I think those factors are more important than the fact that she is a young woman. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is an advantage for her, mm-hmm. there's no question. But in the end, it's the way you project and what you say that matters in elections. Um, the uh, Cameron showed that the Etonian Bullingdon Club thing does not necessarily stop you from winning an election. I do wonder, and this is partly from my own anecdotal experience in highly unrepresentative events, but you know, in the north of England, I think there might be an issue. Some will say, yeah, we just like Boris, good old Boris. There m- might be an issue with some about the, the, his Etonian Oxford uh, and very, where am I, warning, obviously, that sort of thing might uh, be a barrier for, for some, but, I, but in the end, I don't think those issues are as important as what they say and how yeah. they say it. The, 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 I've heard Andrew Jimson, um, one of Boris's two biographers, mm. address this point, and he says that um, the reason being posh isn't a handicap, hasn't proved to be a handicap for Boris so far, even in traditional working-class communities, is because they regard all politicians as posh. They don't distinguish in the way we might between Jeremy Corbyn and Boris Johnson. They're both privately educated. They both live in homes worth over a million. They're both inside the Westminster bubble. They're both in the top 1% of income earners. Any, any, there's no real meaningful distinction in where they're coming from, from our point of view. They're both posh, so Boris's poshness isn't a handicap. That's interesting. I haven't read that. And... Well, if, if they perceive it, they perceive it. I mean, they are wrong, I mean, because people do have different backgrounds. But if that is, a, if that is the perception, um, clearly the, the background of these people uh, won't make any difference. I, hadn't, I, I just don't know. I mean, you have to spend a long time in these parts of the country to get a real sense mm. of, of what they're thinking. Um, but that is interesting. That's One thing I wanted to ask you about is, um, in the course of writing about prime ministers and their their, their rise and fall. Um, do you think that there comes a point when a prominent frontline politician's personality ceases to be an asset and becomes a handicap? You can see it in perhaps Margaret Thatcher as a most yeah. obvious example. Um, but you sort of see it in Corbyn to Alex Salmond. I remember when we've talked before about uh, which politicians we think um, have kind of mastered the craft of yeah. politics. Uh, in our in our lifetimes, most impressively, and we both, I think, thought that Alex Salmond mm. uh, was a very impressive politician, yeah. a very impressive performer, a great kind of rapport uh, with the public. 
that he seems to have become a little bit toxic. And I don't just mean because he's, you know, about to be on trial for all sorts of unspeakable things. Uh, but even before that, his personality did seem to sort of curdle and have a kind of grating effect on the British public. How does that happen? Do they just get bored with them or does power change them in some way? I, th- I think it is partly boredom. Mo- most of these leaders, by no means all, have a honeymoon. And by the way, I think the House of Commons has been very generous in giving Boris Johnson an election while he's still in effect on his honeymoon, where he still seems new and fresh. Um, I remember Kinnock saying when he lost the 92 election, uh, if you remember, John Major had just taken over the government uh, with the fall of Thatcher. He said uh, most voters thought there had already been an election with the change of prime minister. Mm-hmm. And even though this government has been in for nine years now, it feels like a new government with mm-hmm. Johnson because he is such a, uh, a novelty. Now, that will fade. And all the things that people like about him, I guarantee you, at some point, they won't. I mean, of the prime ministers I write about in this book, basically, it's the kind of... I, I did a series for the BBC where I tried to be like the historian AJP Taylor giving talks to camera without scripts. Now, he was a genius that could do it about Bismarck and the Crimean War and stuff. I just did it about these prime ministers who I had observed. And the arc is really interesting. Um, the degree to which they are admired and revered at first and by the end often viewed as a crook, uh, loathed, is extraordinary. It happens in no other field mm. quite the same way. The most interesting art was Blair, who walked on water when he became Labour leader in 1994, and by the end had spent most of his time out of this country uh, because he was so loath with security whenever he went. But it happened to most of them, and, and, and they found their post-prime ministerial lives almost impossible to cope with. Um, and uh, Gordon Brown, who uh, has a, a great curiosity about politics to, to this very day, says there is now a shelf life. Politician, I think he put it at about seven years of, of absolute high profile right at the top, after which people turn. And I think that's true. Um, and it's not about left or right. There is just a limit to that forensic scrutiny. And you can feel the moments where the electorate and the media turns mm. and they cannot bear it. Um, people write a lot about the arrogance and loftiness of prime ministers. Most of the time they're in despair uh, because they know they're unpopular and they can't quite understand because they they don't change that much. They change a bit as people. Uh, Margaret Thatcher inevitably, Blair, when you're there for so long. But what they cannot cope with is, by definition, they were popular at one point, else they wouldn't have got to the top, the turning. Mm -hmm. They find it very, very painful. It feels like that um, is a more pronounced phenomenon uh, for left-wing leaders than for right-wing leaders, if only because the public invests more hope in left-wing leaders than it does in right-wing leaders. And hope is often one of their campaign platforms when they're campaigning Mm. for the leadership Mm. and um, uh, in an election. Um, But it it clearly happened to Cameron too. Mm. Um, And I wondered what you made as a sort of veteran Observer of Prime Minister. That makes me sound about 95. Sorry. As <laughs> a youthful follower of politics. <laughs> what did you make of um, his attempt to manage 
um, uh, some of his unpopularity during his recent book tour to explain mm, why it was he'd embraced the referendum, why he'd resigned and so forth. Did you think he'd done a reasonably effective job of damage limitation or did it just remind people of why they didn't like him? Well, I don't think it was an effective job for two reasons. Uh, one, Cameron has always been uh, partly an imitator of Tony Blair. Um, from the very beginning, I remember when he became leader of the opposition, I had a coffee with Blair, who was still prime minister. And Blair, of course, quite liked him. and They were similar politically. Um, but Blair said, he even wears the same shirts as me. You know, uh, what's, you know what's, he, what's, what's going on? Um, and Cameron used the same language as Blair when he was prime minister. He often used that technocratic phrase, the right thing to do, and so on. And I knew his justification about the referendum would be Blair's about Iraq. Um, there might have been mistakes in the way it was executed, but it was still the right thing to do. And sure enough, that was it. He had read Blair's book, copied his uh, approach to Iraq. Um, so that was one reason why I find it unconvincing. Imitators never endure as political figures. Um, but the other thing is, I don't know what you think, you probably knew him better than me, but I just found him surprisingly naive as a political figure. So, for example, his stuff in the book and in the interviews with the book about um, how taken aback he was that Michael Gove didn't stick to what he told Cameron, that he would only make one speech during the referendum campaign. Well, that shows an ignorance about referendum campaigns. You can't just announce you're for Brexit and then disappear for four weeks if you're a cabinet minister. Mm. Of course he was going to campaign. And... I, I, I again and again was struck by a kind of naivety which comes about, I think, partly when you get to the top so quickly. Mm -hmm. He had been Shadow Education Secretary for a few months, mm -hmm. leader of the opposition, copy Blair, you know, modernising reform kind of approach to opposition, and then became Prime Minister in a coalition in the midst of an economic crisis. And I just I don't know what you think, but I, I just don't think he was ready for each point. And I found his memoir, most of which I've read, unconvincing. I've heard a different analysis um, of uh, why it was he was surprised by Gove being a much more energetic campaigner for Leave than he'd expected. Um, and the analysis I was, was given by someone fairly close to him is that he didn't enjoy having kind of difficult confrontational conversations and neither does Michael Gove. Mm. And so they'd sat down and sort of skirted around this issue and each come away from the conversation believing that they'd kind of That's communicated it. Yeah. exactly what it was they wanted and what they intended to do to the other but without actually having done so. Yeah, so then, when they, when they, when they, then, then Cameron was appalled that... Gove apparently went back on what he'd said. Gove said, I never said that. Why is he appalled? Yeah. And it was really just a kind of misunderstanding that arose out of their mutual inability to kind of really come down to brass tacks in a potentially yeah. difficult conversation. Yeah, and I, you could sort of hear both of them having that conversation. <laughs> yes. But it still doesn't excuse Cameron, who was meant to be the top figure in politics, from assuming just because he was mates with somebody who invited him to checkers for Boxing Day, uh, wouldn't feel strongly about this issue that he had always felt strongly about. And I, I just got lots of these moments in his book where I, I thought, how naive. And 
And I, I felt it from the beginning. I don't know if you ever went to... When he was leader of the opposition, they used to hold loads of seminars about the big society and what it would mm -hmm. mean. It was organised by Steve Hilton and Oliver Letwin, his two close advisors from that period. And, and Cameron used to come along and sit there making notes. like a, you know, very, It was very humble of him to do that. And he would just end it at the end. They'd be analysing, you know, so who would rule things if it wasn't the state? Who would have been in charge of a cooperative? And all this kind of quite interesting stuff. He would sit there taking notes. And at the end, he would say, I think we've got the big idea for the next government. But I, I never felt he was fully engaged with it, really. And... It, it, I have to say, I thought he was, of the Prime Ministers I covered, a, a perfectly decent, nice, bright, obviously bright, all of them bright. You don't become Prime Minister without being bright. But I thought he was the most underdeveloped and, and shallow of the Prime Ministers, whether you're from the right or left or wherever you are on politics. Uh, my view on Cameron is that um, I thought he was a, a pretty impressive leader of the Conservative Party, did a reasonably good job of modernising the Conservative Party and making it electable again, and didn't quite get far enough in 2010, but got far enough to become PM. And I thought he was very fleet-footed and politically skilled in the immediate aftermath of the 2010 general election to bring Nick Clegg into the government and to form what became a very stable five-year coalition. And I thought they did, they did achieve some things during those five years, not least getting down the deficit, rebuilding the British economy, um, winning the um, EU, the, the, the Scottish independence referendum, and then finally getting re-elected, but with a majority in 2015. And I felt the mistake he made as a prime minister uh, wasn't in allowing the referendum to take place. I more or less buy his rationale for why that was unavoidable. Um, but uh, for taking sides in that referendum, I think he should have said, I will stay out of it and I will just implement the result. And I think had he done that, he wouldn't have had to resign he could have negotiated a pretty good deal with the EU, and we now wouldn't be in the mess we're in. Mm. Um, uh, he, of course, completely rejects that. He says that uh, everyone knew where he stood on the EU. It would have been completely against his nature and everything he believes to have remained neutral. He had to campaign for what he believed. And, of course, he thought that if he did campaign, because he thought he was such a good campaigner, I, I agree it would help you, win. I agree with you that he, he managed the coalition and, and w brilliantly, and that is a huge achievement. I can think of no other Tory who could have kept that coalition going for five years. I disagree with you, we won't go into it now, about the policy, what you regard as policy achievements. I think if you analyse some of the policies of that period, the Fixed Term Parliament Act and some of the other things, the health reforms, there was chaos. They moved at the speed of sound, more so than the Thatcher administration in 79, I think made some terrible mistakes. Where I think you're, you're on something really interesting is his role in that referendum. One of the Prime Ministers who I argue in this book deserves looking at again is Wilson. Now, you'd probably disagree with me about that. But just if you just look at what he did in the period when he was meant to be old, paranoid and useless, um, was he won two elections in February, October 74 and won the referendum. And he won that uh, Europe referendum by being self-aware enough to know people hated him. Like all the others, he didn't like being hated, he was paranoid about it. But he knew people were fed up with him by then. So he hardly took part. And it didn't then become about him. So even though voters were by then pissed off with that government, uh, even though it began just for 18 months, they didn't see the referendum as a way of kicking it because he had hardly taken part. Now, I, you know, every now and again, Cameron invited journalists in for coffee. And I had coffee with Cameron at one point, And I said to him, 
look at the way Wilson won the 75 referendum. I could have been speaking French, like, but no, he'd have understood the French, uh, German. Um, he, you know, he, he, he preferred the Blair approach to politics, the performance of politics. But I think you're right, it became, the referendum became partly about him, and that was an error on his part. So we've got time for a few questions. Does, uh, yeah. Uh, yes, uh, very interesting chat. Uh, followed your programmes enthusiastically. Um, I am a kind of long-time Labour supporter, really, although somewhat in despair, as many um, are. Uh, and I'm also from um, a partly Jewish background. So I just feel I cannot bring myself to vote Labour in this, in, in, in this election. Uh, even though, as you say, with the choice on offer, remove Corbyn and I probably would be happy to vote for that agenda. Um, so I, I sort of want to ask um, Corbyn, even you know, if he does win or doesn't, doesn't win, um, at some point he would have to go. Some, it's, I'm, I'm inclined to think and hope it will be sooner rather than later. Um, who I think there's a I think there's a crisis of leadership with yeah. him, which is kind of everyone. Know, well, it's about to be done to death. I think there's a crisis of leadership as to who would replace him. Everyone talks about Keir Starmer, but is he the silver bullet? And Rebecca Long Bailey, I think, is far too inexperienced. Yeah, I, well, I agree with that. I mean, your dilemma about this government, if it were to form a Labour government after this, um, it would probably be a minority government. Um, and this is only a guess. Um, it might not even be uh, Jeremy Corbyn who becomes the Prime Minister that they might insist if the Lib Dems got tons of seats, they'd have some leverage as to who uh, leads it. Um, and so some of your dilemmas, I think, don't, but I think if Labour were to lose, uh, he, he would be gone very quickly. Um, and if he were to become Prime Minister, um, the key figure would be John McDonnell, uh, who I think has got an interesting agenda. He, you know how sometimes in politics people surprise you? And he has surprised me. Um, uh, he has been, he's got some very radical ideas, but he's worked them through and he's tried to win over business leaders to some of the ideas and so on. Um, so he would be uh, the key figure. And they would have a referendum, they would have to, on Brexit. So, um, so that would be probably the shape of things to come uh, if, if that were to happen. The only alternative is a Tory uh, overall majority. So that, in effect, is your uh, choice. As I completely agree with you. I think one of the leadership crises in Britain is the lack of leaders. I mean, while I, some of the prime ministers, when I was writing this book, they had huge figures breathing down behind them, wanting the job, you know, on both sides. Thatcher in the 80s had... Heard Heseltine, Howe, uh, you know, etc. Then later on, Portillo and all these. These were interesting, thoughtful, deep, big figures. And uh, with Labour, you had Crossland, Jenkins, uh, Foot, Ben. Um, you know, on it went. Big, big figures. Healy, Healy of course. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I just do not see the equivalent on either side. And I agree with you about these Labour candidates. You, one good interview on Newsnight, and they think they could become the next leader of the Labour Party. And I don't think they're even good on Newsnight. You know, um, and it is. I, what, I, I, so I agree with you. Do you have I a think theory it's a problem. about why the calibre of politicians does seem to have declined? Is it just that we tend to remember the giants like Healy, um, and at the time, you know, 
taken in the round, they were as unimpressive as they are now? Or do you think there's actually been a genuine decline in the calibre of politicians? I think this is a danger of me sounding like a veteran. I think there's genuinely been a decline. Uh, Again, so forget about left and right on both sides. And the only thing I can think of is partly, you know, it's a cliche, but I think it's true that that sort of generation brought up in the 1930s, the experiences they went through kind of did make them bigger in some respects than the ones today. Um, But I think uh, another reason, this is deeply unfashionable, but the, uh, the, the fashion for localism, you know, that a local person must represent that constituency and it's usually a reward for being a trade unionist, something from local government or on the Tory side, the equivalent. Um, not would they be a potential prime minister if we select them has been a big problem. So, for example, to name one out of the people we've mentioned, I think Tony Crossland got Grimsby as his seat. Now, I'm sure he wasn't from Grimsby, whatever else. Now, that wouldn't happen now. All hell would break loose and, and somebody someone else would. So I think that has been a real problem. And the other thing has been, maybe this is about to change, there has been a period of sort of ideological kind of uh, muddiness, you know, where Cameron said, Look, I'm, a, I'm heir to Blair, Blair said, oh, I quite like Cameron, I agree with you. And they brought along, they, they weren't like it themselves, obviously, but they brought along quite a few followers who were quite flaky. See, I, I, the number of MPs leaving in this House of Commons, people say, isn't it desperately sad? Twitter has abused them. And all now, of course, that is terrible. But, you know, people like Ben and Healy used to get abused and get death threats and all the rest of it. They stayed. So all these One Nation Tories who've just left, people say, oh, isn't it tragic? They should have, you know, if they were serious and big figures, they should have stayed and fought their corner uh, but people just leave now you know and and that that again is really bad more than another question yes um just going back to the referendum um i had always understood that david cameron thought that he would have to go into coalition with the liberals again therefore he could put a referendum in his manifesto that said well i can't do it because these pesky liberals are stopping me now what do you think, had he taken advice, which you're absolutely right, I don't think he ever did take advice on this, had he really taken advice, what do you think would have happened if he'd said after he'd won the election, well, do you know what, we're not going to have the referendum? Because apparently that's what Sarkozy had advised him, said you don't have to do this, David, if you don't want to. What do you think would have happened if he jumped the idea? You go first, um, on your first point, um, uh, you often hear that said, that Cameron wasn't serious about wanting to hold a referendum and that he expected to be in coalition again, at which point he could have dropped it, but supposedly at the insistence of the Lib Dems. Um, but I don't think that's true. Um, I followed the 2015 general election campaign quite closely. And it was clear that the Conservatives had a strategy of wanting to decapitate the Lib Dems, to win seats from the Lib Dems in the southwest, in the south. And I think he was, he, I think he went into that election expecting to win a majority, and therefore not expecting to have to enter into another coalition agreement in which he could discard 
the referendum policy. And I think it would have been very damaging um, had he uh, gone back on that pledge. And it would have, uh, I think, even though I don't think he made the pledge um, uh, in order to shoot the UKIP fox, I mean, he made it before UKIP came first in the 2014 European elections. Uh, but nonetheless, I think it would have given a huge boost to UKIP had he gone back on that pledge, having won a majority. I, I, yeah, I, I, I'm told unequivocally by the people around Cameron, I did a, a series about him for Radio 4, that he knew, having made the pledge, he would have to stick to it. And even if they'd gone into coalition, he would have insisted to Clegg uh, that they have the referendum. And I, my guess is Clegg would have said yes. Clegg was incredibly naive about most of these things. And remember, at one point, the Lib Dems were proposing a referendum on membership themselves. And so I think there was no way, having made the pledge, he could get out of delivering it, and he knew that. I mean, obviously, he made the pledge on the assumption, from his perspective, that he was going to win. And that was the miscalculation. Um, no one offers a referendum on the assumption they're going to lose. I think, on, on, I think he was worried about UKIP. Um, Craig Oliver, his press secretary, tells me they really thought, wrongly, I suspect, that... Uh, uh, the number of Tory MPs who could defect to UKIP could go up to about 13, 14, 15, and he thought that would kill them. Um, so, so I think that was a factor. And I take your point that they did well in the European election after the pledge, um, but these threats of defections were hovering over him. And for all his sort of Etonian self-confidence, uh, defections terrify prime ministers uh, because it symbolises a lack of momentum and things going badly wrong. Probably time for one more question before we wrap it up. Y yes. Um, yeah, I, uh, I was listening and you are talking about the detailed works in, in the British government. So I'm just wondering, uh, do you think uh, the, the, the Prime Minister pre previously or now, are they qualified for their, for their job? Um, and you, you, or in, in this kind of turbulent society, what kind of leadership should they have? And also, what I mean is, uh, what about their political philosophy? Um, mm. And instead of just uh, managing the, the day to day work, uh, how, how is their, uh, from strategic point of view, do they think uh, how to manage this country? Mm. Yeah, in this, in this book I list the qualifications for leadership and they are really tough to meet. No one of the Prime Ministers has met them all. Uh, some have more than others. Um, and I also go, I have no time now, to details of the key ones, absolutely key ones. But what's so interesting about politics at the moment, that's hardly ever discussed. What are the real qualities required? And in fact, to the extent that only in politics is it sometimes an advantage not to have any qualifications at all. Um, so the sort of Trump pitch in America was, like, I've had nothing to do with Washington, I'm not part of it. And I was thinking when he made this kind of pitch, you know, if you say were an actor or wanted to be an actor and you went into the National Theatre and said, could I play Hamlet? They would say, well, have you played any other part before? And so, But in politics, if you say, well, I've had absolutely nothing to do with it, it becomes a qualification. And, um, and then you suddenly find yourself in a position of power and not having a clue what to do with this uh, position. I, I think we need to talk a lot more about what are the qualifications and, of course, including having a sort of ideological base but the knack of leadership is to have that ideology 
keep your party on board, persuade the voters, turn it into policy. I mean, it is really difficult. And yet we casually appoint these people to the, the top uh, without any evidence they've got this capacity. Um, one of the qualifications, by no means the only one, um, is a certain amount of charisma, a certain amount of force of personality, yeah, the ability definitely. to command a room. Um, and uh, I remember I was at Oxford with Boris Johnson and uh, almost from the first moment I set eyes on him at the kind of dispatch box of the Oxford Union where he behaved very much as he behaves now, um, uh, you could just sort of tell that he was a natural leader. You've got this kind of flash of his kind of uh, will to power, this kind of uh, this force of personality, almost like something you could feel. Uh, people talk about when very charismatic people enter a room, you can feel the kind of chemistry, the physics of the room change. And Boris, for all his shortcomings, he has that in spades. I think, um, I hesitate to use this word, but I think Alan Clark in his diaries, when he talked about passing Margaret Thatcher in the corridors of the House of Commons, he experienced what he called the Fuhrer contact. <laughs> and, and, and Boris, I think, uh, uh, and it was said to be something that uh, something that something that the great political leaders, one of the one of the the things they have in their arsenal is this ability to win over kind of someone's undivided loyalty. Yeah. Uh, almost immediately, they just come into the room, they shake their hands, they lock eyes with them, they expose them to their kind of extraordinary personality, and suddenly the person is kind of is spellbound, yeah. and after that can remain loyal to them for decades yeah yeah it is it is uh, it's a magician's art to, to cast a spell over people in a, in a room and and it is almost an, a, an essential qualification of leadership because you're dealing with such craziness so much shapeless hyperactivity to be able to make sense of it or to convince an audience that you can make sense of it uh, which that the election winners have all been able to do that um, uh, the, in recent times, uh, Wilson at his peak, Blair, Thatcher could cast a spell, and even if there was chaos behind the scenes, gave a sense of command and momentum and purpose. And that's partly charisma. There are other factors, of course. You've got to believe in things and uh, and translate that belief and many other things. But th this magical capacity uh, is, is a really interesting part of leadership, I think. Well, Do you think they have a, like, a long-term vision uh, about how to manage this country? Or they just have a will to power or try to... Long-term vision is, is, is fundamental, or else politics just becomes a technocratic mm. muddle. And, and, but not all of them have that. Yeah, I think, um, I think one of the reasons Boris won the internal leadership battle is because people were persuaded that he really believed in Britain's post-Brexit future as an independent, sovereign, trading nation, and that, that, that none of the others seemed to believe in Brexit uh, in the same way. And if they were going to go all in on Brexit, and that was going to be the big issue in the forthcoming campaign, they needed a leader who really believed in it. I think that, that was but, a, but considered an asset. It is in interesting with Boris. Cameron is adamant that he didn't believe in Brexit. Boris Johnson didn't believe in Brexit. He did it purely as a career 
move, which contradicts, I completely get your thing yeah. about charisma, but, but is his purpose as quite as coherent as you suggest? Yes, I mean, I think all politicians, it's a kind of trade-off, isn't it, between the will to power and remaining faithful to their vision, and they kind of trim a little bit with the wind. But I don't think Boris is, I mean, Boris is often faulted for being more of a trimmer than others and more self-seeking. Uh, but I think, in fact, he's just like uh, most other successful politicians. It's a kind of blend. And what, what, what distinguishes really successful politicians, and Blair had this and Brown didn't, was the ability to persuade himself that whatever was, it was in his yes. interest to believe, he yeah. really genuinely, passionately yeah. believed. That is, uh, can be an attribute, uh, attribute and very dangerous. <laughs> yes. <laughs> anyway, uh, your book's on sale. Um, oh, it is uh, actually. Okay, yeah, so yeah, if I'm you signing it later. Please do later. go and buy Steve's book. He'll be down there signing it later. And join me in thanking Steve Richards. And thank you. If you would like to support Quillette, please consider becoming a patron. Head to our Patreon page. That's patreon.com forward slash Quillette. If you haven't already, follow us on social media. We're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Do you like what you're hearing? Perhaps you would like to read more about the issues in today's discussion. Head to Quillette.com where you will find more content.